0: Well, as the baskets are making their way around, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if, you're, if you're a little bit new to our fellowship, let me catch you up to speed with what we've been doing this summer. Uh, late in the spring, the elders asked the members of Four Oaks Church to consider the adoption of the Gospel Coalition Confessional Statement as our church's statement of faith. And so we set aside uh, 13 weeks over the summer to walk through the new statement article by article. And in a few weeks, we're going to be asking the members of Four Oaks Church to vote to affirm uh, the change in our statement. We understand what a big deal that is. We've been unified and united around a particular statement of faith for 25 years. And when you go to vote, we want you to be able to vote with a clear and clean and well-informed conscious about what that means. And so we've been walking through this statement together. It's been a really rich time. And this week, we've come to Article 11, the doctrine of God's new people. Our topic this morning is the doctrine of the church. And I want to invite us to read together from Matthew chapter 16. And I'll begin reading in verse 13. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need the gift of illumination Our hearts are hard, they are constantly drawn away from your truth, and we need you to awaken us to your truth. We need to be sanctified in the truth of your word. So we ask this morning, as we humble ourselves under it, that you would take from Jesus and give to us, that you would open up our eyes so that we might behold beautiful and wonderful things from your scriptures transform us through this time, even through these moments together into the kind of church you would have us be, even if that's just a few degrees. We want to be the church that you have called us to be. So please be at work as we consider these things together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're talking about the doctrine of the church. And our discussion of the church comes today in, 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 a, in an interesting cultural moment. It's an interesting time for us to be talking about this. Our, our, the, the, the spirit of our age, I think, was, was really captured in an article that I read earlier this, this year in New York Times Magazine. Uh, and it did so by offering kind of a modern retelling or spin on the parable of the scorpion and the frog. Let me, let me read it to you. So you know the, the, the story, the scorpion needs a ride across the river, and he can't swim. So he asks the frog to do him a solid to take him across. And uh, the frog is, is skeptical, okay? He's afraid the scorpion is going to sting him. But the scorpion reassures him and says, hey, man, if I did that, both of us would die. That would be crazy. So it's safe. It's good. So the frog agrees. But sure enough, about halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And just before they drown, the scorpion calls out to the frog and says, aren't you going to ask why I did that? And the frog croaks back his reply, hey man, you do you. That's the spirit of our age, isn't it? You do you. Just be yourself. Just do whatever works for you. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has, has taken this idea, this mindset, he calls it the, the ethic of authenticity. He describes this ethic as the, the belief that life and spirituality, and and really reality itself, is determined primarily in terms of what works for me. I have to realize my own humanity and my own deepest desires, and then I need to express them and live them out no matter what. And I'm not going to conform to any models or standards or constraints imposed by anyone else, especially not institutions. And this the Spirit has led us to a place where, where we're anti-institution, we're anti-authority. We stick it to the man, right? And why is that? Because the man, whether that's God or the church or our parents or, or some other outside authority, the man tends to get in the way of me doing me, doesn't it? We saw this recently in Bruce Jenner, deciding that what works best for him was to self-identify as Caitlyn Jenner, as a woman. We saw it in the fact that this announcement was met with almost universal applause. Of course, this person should be able to do that. If that's what makes him or her happy, then of course they should be able to do that. ESPN gave Jenner the Arthur Ashe Award for courage. We see this as well in in our culture of of no-fault divorce. And of course, there are good reasons for for divorce, biblical reasons, it's a, it's a grievous thing, but there are allowances that can be made for that. But in our day, we, we, we tend to think of marriage not in terms of the sacred vows that we've made before a holy God. We tend not to think of marriage as an institution that's given for the flourishing of humanity and for families. We think of it mostly in terms of what works for me. And the moment my marriage stops working for me, when it stops being a catalyst for my happiness, I'm out. I have to be me. I have to be happy. I have to realize my best authentic self. We see it as well in the plot of most Disney movies. Oh, yeah, I'm going there. Disney movies. So think about it for a second. Aladdin doesn't want to fit into the mold that society has cast him in. He's the street rat, right? That's not who he wants to be. So he has to go on his own journey to become his best self. The little mermaid doesn't want to be held down by her father's wishes because she wants to be, you know, part of that world, part of our world. So she has to forge her own path. And in Frozen, Elsa's not going to be the good girl she always has to be, right? She's going to do what? She's going to let it go. (laughs) I'm very sorry. You're right, I'm not. When you're singing that at 6 o'clock tonight and cursing me in your heart, you'll know it was a an effective illustration. Even those of us who, who love Jesus and earnestly want to follow Jesus, I don't think we realize how deeply we've imbibed this, this cultural brew and been shaped and formed by it. How often have you seen this? The minute the church makes a claim upon my life that is beyond what I'm comfortable with or the moment that I that I experience hurt or I suffer wrong in the church, the instinct is not I'm going to stick it out, we're going to work through these things, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to work through it as a family. No, it's, it's I'm out of here. I'm gone. And sometimes that's to the church across the street, but sometimes I'm gone out of the church altogether. I find this really fascinating. It's, it's this very mindset that's led to the proliferation in recent years of anti-church books. Have you seen these? You know, there's a whole like cottage in- industry of books that are anti-institutional church. So if you have Amazon Prime, and, and by the way, why wouldn't you have Amazon Prime? Titles like these could be on your doorstep in just two days, two business days. Life After Church, Dear Church, Quitting the Church, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore, Pagan Christianity, They Like Jesus, But Not the Church. On and on we could go. And these writings are, are moving beyond critiquing the church. And let's, let's be fair, let's be honest, we know there's a lot to critique in the church. That's legitimate, but these, these books are going far beyond that. They're asking, is the church even necessary? Do we even need the church to be Christians? Is the church superfluous to faith in Jesus? Or is it an obstacle to faith in Jesus? Maybe some of you are asking those same questions this morning. Maybe some of you have suffered massive hurt in the church. The confidences have been broken. Horrible things have been said. And done. and you're asking this morning, is the church even worth it? Why should I even bother? Well, if that's where you are, I'm really glad you're here this week. Because we are going to look to this statement of faith and to the scriptures that inform this statement to see how God's word answers those questions about the church. Let's read Article 11 together. It should be on the screen behind me. Article 11, God's New People. We believe that God's new covenant people have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. They are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This universal church is in fact, uh, excuse me, this universal church is manifest in local churches of which Christ is the only head. Thus, each local church is in fact the church, the household of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the body of Christ, the apple of his eye, Graven on his hands, and he has pledged himself to her forever. The church is distinguished by her gospel message, her sacred ordinances, her discipline, her great mission, and above all, by her love for God and by her members' love for one another and for the world. Crucially, this gospel we cherish has both personal and corporate dimensions, neither of which may be properly overlooked. Christ Jesus is our peace. He has not only brought about peace with God, But also peace between alienated peoples. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The church serves as a sign of God's future new world when its members live for the service of one another and their neighbors, rather than for self-focus. The church is the corporate dwelling place of God's Spirit, and the continuing witness to God in the world. Now, we're not going to dive deeply into the Matthew 16 text this morning, other than to joyfully and wholeheartedly affirm what it plainly states, which is that Jesus is building his church. What I want us to do this morning is to look at a number of texts from the New Testament to find out what exactly is Jesus building. I want to take a few moments this morning to establish two things. First, the identity identity. That Jesus has given to his church, and second, the mission Jesus has given to his church. My hope is that as we do that, as God reveals to us what Jesus is building, we would see not only how necessary and worth it it is, but how beautiful it is. So let's consider it together. Let's start with identity. What is the church? The most common word for church in the New Testament, uh, in the Greek New Testament, is the Greek word ekklesia. That word means called out ones. The church is made up of Christians, those who are called by Jesus' invitation through the finished work of Jesus into shared belief, into shared community. It's a group of people who have Christ as their life, their head, and their source. To say it more simply, the church is Jesus' covenant people, the people to whom Jesus has pledged himself and for whom Jesus died. And this word, church, as it's used in the New Testament, typically has two expressions. The church is both universal and the church is local. Here's an example of that, and then I'll tell you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he addresses his letter in this way, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and their Lord. And ours, Paul writes to the church in Corinth that's called together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So to Paul, the church was in Corinth just as much as it was tied to all Christians in every place. In Corinth was a local church. In every place is the universal church. So in the universal sense, the word church is applied to all believers throughout the world. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church, he's not talking about a building, he's not talking about an individual congregation, he's talking about the church universal, all believers in the world. And just so you know, that's what we're affirming when we recite the Nicene Creed, or the Apostles Creed, we'll occasionally do that in our worship, and there's a line in there that says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That word Catholic comes from the Greek word "katholikos," and it just means universal we're affirming that there is one true universal church consisting of all believers throughout the world. And it's easy for us to think church primarily in terms of local, but we have to remember that the church is universal, and there's something beautiful about this. The church transcends culture and ethnicity to unite people in Christ. Here's how the statement says it. Christ Jesus is our peace. He has not only brought about peace with God, but also peace between alienated peoples. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and in one body, one universal body, to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Have you ever had an opportunity to worship in another culture? Has anybody had that opportunity? It's an amazing thing. And if you ever get a chance to do it, I would strongly recommend that you jump on board that next short-term mission trip to go and be able to worship in another culture. Just a few weeks ago, I was asked to speak at a, at a worship conference in the Dominican Republic. And while we were there, we sang in one of our gatherings, the song we, we sang a, a, few mom, a few minutes ago, This I Believe. And I have to tell you, it was such an incredible thing to sing those words. I believe in the saints' communion. And in your holy church, to sing those words in Spanish, surrounded by these Dominican saints, I was just overwhelmed again by by the the globalness, the universality of the gospel. I was just reminded in that moment that though with these people, I don't don't share a common language, I don't share a, a common cultural experience, but these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, these are my people. And here's the best part. Guys, we're going to experience that universal reality in full on the last day. When we gather around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will see that around that table next to us is the entire universal church. Brothers and sisters gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation, we will be united together. I don't understand how that's going to work. It's going to be a giant table. But we're all going to be there praising the Lamb who was slain. And by the way, we will probably not be praising in English. That would be my guess. We'll be singing the glory of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who came to redeem us from our sins. Not just for the white kid from Tallahassee, but for all peoples in all places. This universal church is real. It's amazing. You are a part of it if you're in Christ. That's where it's all headed. It's vitally important. But we have to recognize we're not there yet. We are here now, and the Bible deals with that as well. As we wait for that day, Scripture is clear that this universal reality is to be manifested locally and personally and relationally in a body of believers. The statement says, This universal church is manifest in local churches of which Christ is the only head. Thus, each local church is, in fact, the church, the household of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of, Of the truth. I just want to be very direct with you for just a minute. Are you a Christian? You are called to be a part of a local church. And the best apologetic for this is the simple fact that as you read your New Testament, it makes no sense, it has no context for application. There's no way you can obey it and pattern your life after it apart from involvement in the local church. Think about it for a second. Think about about the one another commands of Scripture. You know the one another commands in the New Testament? Let me read you just a few of them. Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sin to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. Romans 12.10, Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Peter Four nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I could give you a dozen more examples, but here's what I want you to see. You can't obey these commands apart from an investment, an involvement belonging to a local church. You have to have someone to outdo in showing honor. You have to have someone there that you can serve. You have to be involved in someone's life if you're going to bear their burdens. The New Testament assumes that you will be meaningfully connected to a local church. The theologian John Stott has written a book called The Living Church and he addresses this, uh, this idea that is becoming more and more prominent in our day that we can be Christians without being committed to the church. Here's what he says. First, I am assuming that we are all committed to the church. Not only are we, not, we are not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to to build His church. That is, to call out of the world a people for His own glory. True, we may be dissatisfied, even disillusioned with some aspects of the institutional church, but, we, but still we are committed to Christ and His church. And why are we committed to the church? Because the church is where elders elder, and pastors pastor, and servants serve. It's a place where God places you in accountability and in responsi- and gives you responsibility and gives you a place to grow in holiness, in Christ's likeness It's where you have a context to bless others with your spiritual gifts and for you to be blessed by the gifts that he's apportioned to others. The New Testament presents the church as the place where all of that happens. The church is a beautiful identity and this identity begins to to emerge and, and begins to have contours as we think about some of the images, the metaphors that the New Testament uses to illustrate what the church is. Think of, let's think about some of them for a minute. The New Testament calls the church the household of God, the family of God. 1 Timothy three fourteen through 15 says, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The church is God's household. It's his family. In the church, we have God as our heavenly father. We are God's children here in the church. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God with Christ as our elder brother. Isn't it a wonderful thing to have a God who isn't just your creator, he isn't just your judge, but, but he's your dad. I, I know for some of you, this is a, that's a difficult metaphor to wrap your arms around because maybe you had an absent father. Maybe you had an abusive father or a neglectful father. But if you're in Christ, you have a perfect heavenly father who loves you with a perfect love. Do you realize how amazing that is? Have you thought about how incredible that is recently? There's a great quote I love from J.I. Packer's incredible book, Knowing God. If you haven't read it, run home and read it today. He says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And our understanding of Christianity cannot be better in our grasp of adoption. Can we stay with this for just a second? Guys, do you know that God loves you? as your father. He doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He's, he's crazy about you. He enjoys you because you're his kid. Maybe an illustration from my own household will help. You know, we've got four kids, seven and under. And kid art has completely overtaken our house. You know about kid art? My kids are constantly bringing me pictures, okay, pictures that they've drawn, pictures they've colored, pictures they've covered with stickers, things they've made at school, things they've made in their Sunday school class at church, things they made in their room while they were supposed to be cleaning their room. They're bringing me things all the time, stuff that they've made. And what do I do when my kids bring me stuff that they've made for me? Do I look at it and start to critique, say, ooh, look at that, that Donald Duck is just, is terrible. I mean, do you even see the, ear, the Mickey ears you're trying to color in here? I mean, that, that's just, come on, go back and work harder. Is that how I react? No, man, I'm all about that kid art. I love it. I'm framing it. I'm freaking out. I'm saying, oh, this is so good. I love it. Why do I do that? It's my kids. And I love them. And if I can do that as, as sinful and lame and as big of a doofus as I am as a dad, how do you think your perfect heavenly father loves you with a perfect love feels about your attempts to honor him and please him however feeble they might be he loves it he's freaking out as he watches you seek to please him he's saying look at that look at him he's he's, he's going next door to the guy who offices next to him and and he's inviting him to church he's telling him about me great job like yeah his gospel presentation is a little off you know Could be a little more. Could do a little better there. That that was a little bit of heresy. That's okay. He's trying to please me. I love that kid. That's my son. I love him. Look at her. She's she's taking a meal to the neighbor who just had a baby. I'm trying to create a relationship there. Trying to make an investment and give herself away for that person. I love her. I'm so proud of her. Through Christ, you have God as your father, and you express the reality of your sonship, you put flesh on your adoption by God by joining with his family in the church, by uniting with brothers and sisters who love you. And guys, we understand, that's not always easy. Do brothers and sisters get along all the time? No, they certainly don't. But if you're part of a family, you know that it's not easy, but you know that it's good. But you know that it's worth it. We are God's household, his family. There are other metaphors. If we had more time, we'd dig into them. The Ephesians 1.22, you can just jot these down if you're taking notes. Ephesians 1.22 describes the church as the body of Christ, emphasizing our unity, our interdependence upon one another. We're a body with Christ as our head. 1 Corinthians 3 says the church is God's field, it's God's building, it's where God is doing his work. 1 John 15, 5, Jesus says that we're the branches who are connected and attached to the vine who is Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 5 says we're God's temple, we're like living stones being built into a spiritual house with Christ as the chief cornerstone. And Ephesians 5, maybe the most intimate of all of the images of the church, the church is called the bride of Christ And though the church is an adulterous and unfaithful wife to Jesus, she has an incredible hope because one day she is going to be presented to Jesus as a spotless wife without blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. Not because she's beautiful. Not because she's going to get things figured out. But because Jesus is patient with her. He is making her, building her into something beautiful. Again, the statement says, the church is the body of Christ, the apple of his eye, graven on his hands, and he has pledged himself to her forever. Jesus is building a beautiful church with a beautiful identity. And he's also given this church a mission. Let's think about the mission for a moment. When God calls out a people and gathers them together under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he moves them, he sends them, he propels them and the gospel moves us in three directions. It moves us upward toward God. It moves us inward toward one another. And it moves us outward to our neighbors. Here's how we say this at Four Oaks. We say our, our church exists to treasure, grow, and go in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We go upward toward God as we treasure him in worship. We go inward toward one another as we grow together in grace. And we go outward as we go to our neighbors with the message of salvation through Jesus I want to key in on the end of this statement from the statement of faith. The church is distinguished by her gospel message, her sacred ordinances, her discipline, her great mission, and above all, by her love for God and by her members' love for one another and for the world. I want to look at those three, those three directions that God sends us here. We are distinguished by our love for God, for one another, and for the world. First, love for God. Our mission is to treasure him. We are a worshiping community. And when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day as a church, there's a work of of renewal and formation in the love of God that takes place. I don't know if you realize this or not, but you spend six days a week absolutely immersed in a culture that's preaching at you and trying to form you in a particular way. That's true of all of us. Our culture is constantly telling us, it's preaching that message we talked about at the beginning of our time together. You do you. It's selling you a vision of human flourishing in the good life that tries to edit God out of the picture and place you at the center of your universe. Advertising bombards you with messages that what you want most of all isn't Jesus. It's this other thing. It's this commodity. It's this thing you can purchase or, or, or obtain. All that stands between you and the good life is this article of clothing This four door luxury sedan, this can of Axe body spray. All you gotta do is get your hands on it, and you'll look good, you'll feel good, you'll be respected. Members of the opposite sex will desire you, and you will have the life you've always wanted. Just come obtain it. You do you. That's one of the reasons that we we come to worship every Sunday. We don't just come into this place to be inspired by some good music and to hear some practical tips for daily living. We come to be shaped by a better story and to affirm the worth and beauty of Jesus. And in doing that, we renounce the false gods of our age that clamor for our hearts and clamor for our affections. I brought this quote with me from John Whitbleet. who who says this so well. He says, Every time we sing praises to the triune God, we're asserting our opposition to anything that would attempt to stand in God's place. Every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. When we sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, we are also saying, Down with gods from whom no blessings flow. That's part of the work that we do when we gather for worship. One of the chief ways that we fight against the allure of the ethic of authenticity, the way that we engage in a battle with a culture that wants to form us and fashion us into the image of something other than God is to gather with God's people for worship. You know, we we do things real simply here. Every Sunday, we walk through the gospel story in our worship. We begin by affirming that God is holy. We acknowledge that we are sinners. We delight that Jesus saves us And we are sent out on mission by Jesus to live for him. That's the story we tell every Sunday. We walk through that in our worship. And when we unite under God's word, when we rehearse that story together, when we come to the Lord's table together as a family, we are being formed into gospel-shaped people who love God because he first loved us. That's why these gatherings matter so much. Guys, do you prioritize the assembly? Do you love to gather with God's people for worship? Do you love to sit under the preaching of God's word? I pray, I pray this for you a lot. I pray that you and I would see these times as precious and valuable and that we would be able to say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We're distinguished by our love for God. We are also distinguished by our love for one another. And this love for one another, this growing together in grace happens primarily in our fellowship groups where we live out and apply God's commands about community. And we call you without apology, without shame, to belong to a fellowship group. And we do that not because we think it's trendy or because we think every other church in town is doing it or because we just want to load you down with stuff to do. We do it because you were created for and saved into community. It's what God made us for, and it's what God has saved us into. And get, understand this, guys the leadership of Four Oaks, we're not naive. We understand that fellowship group is hard. It's hard because people don't show up, people aren't honest about what's going on in their lives, people conceal what's going on, childcare is difficult. You can't get people to give childcare money. Snacks are late. There's, for a hundred reasons, fellowship group is hard. But you know what else is hard? Family's hard, isn't it? I mean, can we be honest for a second here? Here, here? How about this? How many of you managed to make it out of the family you grew up in completely unscathed? Without any wounds, no scars, all good in the hood, wouldn't change a thing, right? Anyone? Anybody want to sign up for that? I'm not raising my hand. My family's here. Love you guys. But we all know that's true. How about this? How many of you have no issues in your family life right now? You honestly assess it and you're like, man, everything's just perfect. It's awesome. None of us would say that. The church is no different. We are a messed up family like every other family. In fact, I think the deeper you get into community here at Four Oaks, the more you realize how messed up and broken we really are. Say, man, I can't believe what a messed up family this is. But here's the thing God does some of His best work in our souls, in the context of community, difficult community. Guys, we need one another. We need all the gifts of the body. We need compassionate people to love on us and pray for us when we're, when we're struggling. We need the prophetic types among us to speak the truth to us, to confront us in our sin. Guys, we even need the difficult people in our midst to teach us how to love, to teach us to be patient, to teach us how to apply the gospel in community. Let me ask you this. Are there people in your life who have the green light to speak truth to you? Are there people who would know if the bottom dropped out of your life tomorrow and would come around you with care and love? Are there people who are ready and welcome to step into the hard spaces in your life when you're in sin, when you're struggling, when you're suffering? As we cannot do this alone. That's why we, if you're, if you're not plugged in the community at 4 Oaks, can I just encourage you, come to that Connect Brunch on the 23rd? Find a place to belong. It's hard. But it is worth it. Find a place to serve. Give of your gifts to build up the body of Christ. Guys, we know it's hard. It's inconvenient. But we understand this. Love is costly. But it is so very worth it. The church is distinguished by her love for one another. And the church is distinguished by our love for the world. The church is God's witness to God's message of salvation. A witness is someone who has seen and now wants to go and tell. We're witnesses in that we have experienced the power and the presence of the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ, and then we want to go and tell people about it. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. If you've been around church at all, you're very familiar with these words from Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus speaking again. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's very simple, guys. When the gospel transforms us, it sends us. It sends us out to be witnesses. Witnesses great example of this. In, in my house recently, I was making breakfast and my son, Titus, walked into the room and I'd just taken some bacon off the, off the skillet. And so I said, hey buddy, you, know, you want a piece of bacon? Gave him a piece of bacon. And he takes it in his hand. And before he does anything else, before he takes a bite, before he thanks me, he goes running off into the other room to where my daughters were. And he announced, he heralded the good news to his sisters, dad has bacon. Guys, it's the most natural thing in the world to share our joy. In his uh, his reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis says that we praise what we enjoy because praising completes our enjoyment. There's a sense in which our joy in something isn't complete until we've shared it and proclaimed it. And that's how the gospel works, and that's how the gospel spreads. Found people want to tell everyone what's happened so that they can go and get found as well. The statement says, The church serves as a sign of God's future new world when its members live for the service of one another and their neighbors rather than for self-focus. The church is the corporate dwelling place of God's spirit and the continuing witness to God in the world. Daniel Montgomery is the, is the lead pastor of Sojourn Community Church, and he was with us earlier uh, this year, and he told us a story of a time in their church where they kept seeing person after person getting into the baptismal waters and they kept mentioning this name over and over again. They kept saying the name Dustin. And so over and over again, more than a dozen people got baptized, and they kept saying the name Dustin. And so they, they sort of traced back the baptism stories, and they found uh, this community group that had just been started by this couple named Dustin and Sherry Crawford. And they asked Dustin and Sherry about this, and Dustin and Sherry said they'd been captured by this vision to turn from self-focus and to live for the service of others, and they just began to ask simple questions. What worlds are we in? What does it look like for us to be who we are, where we are, for the good of others? And so Sherry was in dental school. Dustin was working uh, in a job with a lot of coworkers in the inner city. And so they decided just to start a new community group. And they invited their neighbors. And Dustin invited his coworkers. And Sherry invited her classmates from dental school. And a bunch of people showed up. And as they looked around the room, they realized Dustin and Sherry did. We're the only Christians in this room right now. And so they just showed hospitality and they started talking about Jesus. And you know what happened? Something crazy started happening. People started getting saved. People started getting saved. And soon the Sojourn Church Baptistry had a slew of people lining up from Dustin and Sherry's group ready to proclaim this new salvation they'd found in Christ. All because Dustin and Sherry asked, what does it look like for us to be witnesses to what we've seen in the worlds we live in right now? do you think God could do that through you? Do you think he could do something like that through me? Understand, that is how the gospel has advanced for 2,000 years, going all the way back. I've said this before. All the way back to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter proclaimed it. Somebody heard it. They believed it, and then they went and told somebody. And then that somebody went and told somebody. And then they went and told somebody who told somebody who told somebody all the way down for 2,000 years until somebody told You. And the eyes of your hearts were enlightened. And you saw that Jesus was beautiful. And you were saved. That's how the gospel has always advanced. Through the church, bearing witness to the person and power of Jesus. By the way, just as a coda to that story about Dustin, in the, in the time subsequent to, to that story, Dustin did a church planting residency at Surgeon Church, and now he's planting True North Church, in Atlanta, Georgia, as a part of the Sojourn Network, which is a network uh, of church planting that we are a part of. And Dustin's actually, we've invited him to come and speak here at Cullarne in December. We're excited to have him with us. The church is the place where we go in love to carry the message of Jesus to a lost and broken world. Let me conclude here. Jesus is building his church. He has given her a beautiful identity He has given her a beautiful mission. And so we can answer that question with confidence. Is the church necessary? Is the church worth it? Yes. Yes, it is. Understand this, guys. We don't get to choose what sort of Christians we want to be. Jesus gets to decide that. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church but there's no other place to be a Christian except the church. Guys, do you love the church? And not just an abstract concept of the church, but do you love the local church for all of its flaws? You know, Katie and I celebrated our 10th anniversary this week. And I was thinking about this. You know, you can't be pro-Josh if you're anti Katie. In fact, you can't be pro-Josh if you're somewhat ambivalent toward Katie. I have a jealous love for my wife that comes from the fact that that we're one flesh. That's how how closely I identify with her. And you need to understand, Jesus feels the same way about his bride. Do you like Jesus' wife? Do you love her? Are you a member of God's family? Are you a part of Christ's body? Guys, our hope for you isn't primarily that you would join Four Oaks Church. Our primary hope for you and prayer for you is that you would join a local church, that you would, for God's glory, for your joy, for your progress in the faith, for the continuing witness of God in the world, that you would find somewhere to anchor yourself and then give and serve and worship with all the strength God supplies. We think Four Oaks is a great church. There's a lot of great churches out there. But we understand this. Borough's church is not the hope of the world. But the church is the hope of the world. Jesus is building his church. And one day, his church is going to crash the gates of hell. And we are going to stand on top of what's left of those gates as they lie in glorious ruin. And we will stand triumphant. We will be broken and battered, weak, wounded, sick, and sore, but we will stand in victory as Christ gets the glory.